Well, good morning. Great weekend. Come on. Women's retreat. Forty of our women went down to Ridgecrest. Uh, one of our own, Karen Dagger, is one of the uh, speakers, and then Sam is leading worship. And, and then there is that thing, March Madness, going on. Six ACC teams still left. We're 9-0, and actually pulling for the other three uh, this afternoon. I guess I am so that we can be 12-0 and and break a record and have six teams in the Sweet 16. That'd be great, wouldn't it? And then I'll pull for them to lose, except for Carolina. Okay, let's change the news. I'm sure some of you saw the news over the past couple of weeks. Perfect timing. Televangelist and pastor Creflo Dollar, a health, wealth, and prosperity teacher, wants more of your wealth. He wants 200,000 of his followers to donate at least $300 each so that he can buy a new Gulfstream G650, a $65 million luxury jet. He says he needs it so that he can, quote, continue to swiftly and safely spread the gospel of, or, or the good news of the gospel worldwide. According to the Gulfstream site, the G650 is the biggest, fastest, most luxurious, longest range, and most technologically advanced jet by far. You got to go, you might as well go in style. I guess... Creflo's two Rolls, two Rolls Royces won't get him to all those very hard-to-reach places, like traveling between his $2.3 million home in Atlanta, his $2.5 million home in New Jersey, and his $2.5 million home in Manhattan. Well, actually, that's not exactly true. He sold that $2.5 million home in Manhattan a couple of years ago for $3.75 million. Founder of World Changers Church International, Pastor Dollar. <laughs> Can you believe that name? <laughs> There's a little humor in this. Pastor Dollar actually teaches that, quote, the word of God is the gateway to the world of wealth, particularly his. Annual operating budget of the Atlanta-based ministry exceeds $80 million dollars. By the way, he refuses to disclose his salary, refuses, which has earned him an F from Ministry Watch and actually caused him to be investigated by Congress about 2007, I think, along with five other health, wealth, prosperity teachers with lavish personal spending. Benny Hinn, Paula White, Eddie Long, Ken Copeland, and Joyce Meyer, and you say, but I listen to some of them. Well, then stop. Sad part about the jet campaign is he'll probably get it as he continues to fleece his flock. 
What is amazing to me is the number of people who are sucked in by this health, wealth, and prosperity theology, which if you've been coming to this church for any period of time, you know is a personal irritation to me because I see it as pure, unadulterated heresy. It is not gospel-centered. It is not Christ-centered. It is not word-centered. It is purely self-centered, which I suppose is why people are drawn to it. I mean, if I believe, can I be rich and maybe get my own Gulf Stream? And it's charlatan hucksters, make no mistake about it, wolves in sheep's clothing are clearly in it for the money. And they are clearly condemned in our text today, found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. I've been waiting all book to get here. <laughs> Let me bring us up to speed. Paul has just finished his treatment of three groups of people within the church. He actually started chapter 5 by reminding us that we are family. Right, So treat older men like fathers, younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, and younger women like sisters. From there, he spent the rest of the chapter talking about how we are to treat certain groups within the family. Right, We have, we have, we have members in the family that we need to treat certain ways, namely widows and, and elders. And then he got first part of chapter 6 with that very kind of difficult teaching on uh, how slaves should treat their masters in the slave-master relationship. Now... He is, he, he's nearing the end of his letter, right? He's getting ready to wrap things up, so he wants to address yet another group, yet another time, these false teachers. You see, he's already talked about them in chapters 1 and 4. I won't review those passages. But Paul is deeply concerned about the inroads that these heretics, these false teachers, these wolves had made into the church. So he takes up the subject one more time, and it's going to sound like we're reading an expose of Christian television because we're going to learn something new about them this morning. He hasn't addressed it yet. Let's read it together. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 and following say this. If He's just told Timothy, I want you to preach and teach these things. And if anyone advocates a different doctrine, it does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and, and, and with the with doctrine conforming to godliness, then he is conceited and understands nothing. He has a morbid interest in controversial questions, disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction. That sounds spiritual. Between men a depraved mind and uh, deprived of the truth. Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain? Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Especially if that covering is a Gulf Stream. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into Ruin and destruction. Love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Does, does it look like, sound like you're reading the newspaper? It sounds like I was reading that congressional report. 
remember that Paul and Timothy had traveled through Ephesus to visit the uh, church and they found it in, in, engulfed, consumed with false teaching. And we saw that it was coming from some of the elders. And after disciplining a couple of them, Hymenius and Alexander, Paul had to leave. And so he left Timothy in Ephesus to set things in order. And then he writes him this letter to encourage him in the task. And he returns to this topic of false teaching. Not quite done. Outline of the text is going to look like this. Further description of the false teachers, description of what true gain is, by the way. And then the ultimate destruction of these guys. Very strong language. Starts by reminding Timothy this teaching is a different or a strange doctrine. It's one of two times that this word is used in the entire New Testament. The other one was in in chapter 1 of this book, it, 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 it's the word heteroteaching, from which we get our word heterodoxy, different teaching, different doctrine, strange teaching. And it gives us a little more insight into, these, into the false teaching of these guys in verses 3 to 5. Well, we're only going to just touch on them. Paul tells us how the teaching is different, what it primarily consisted of, and then what it produces. So, so in verse Three, he says their teaching is a different doctrine for the, for the following two reasons. First, it does not agree with sound words of or about our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word sound, sound words, actually speaks of, of healthy. I find that incredibly interesting. Healthy words. Here you go. If you want a gospel of health, it should be the gospel of sound words. Healthy words, right words, true words. Namely, those words of or about our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice how Paul, I think, intentionally uses Jesus' full title. He is the Lord. That means he is God in the flesh. He is full deity. He is Jesus in his humanity. He was fully human. He is the Christ, the promised or anointed one sent to deal with the sin of the world. And, and, and so sound teaching ought to conform to these specific truths about Jesus and about the gospel. Any teaching, listen to me, any teaching that denies the deity, any teaching that denies the full humanity, and any teaching that denies the work of Jesus is heretical. You, you take any cult throughout history doesn't matter, name one to the very present day, and they are always messing with this teaching about Jesus. For example, cults like the Mormons, and I don't really care what former President Jimmy Carter or Joel Osteen says about the Mormons, they are not Christian. They are a cult because they deny the, the unique deity of Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. Mormons teach that, yes, Jesus was God, just like one day you can be God. The unique deity of Jesus, they mess with that. Jehovah's Witnesses deny the essential deity of Jesus Christ. They say, well, he was kind of like God, but not really God, not God. Any teaching that denies the deity or the humanity, the full humanity, or the work of Jesus Christ is heresy. Second, this different 
doctrine does not conform to godliness. The, the word there could be translated piety. That's actually a good word. I know we use it negatively. You're so pious. It's actually good to be pious. It could be speaking of religion in a good sense. In other words, not only is this teaching wrong about the gospel, it is wrong about the life that the gospel is supposed to be producing. It's supposed to be a life of, of godliness. And read this description of what was happening in the church. Does that sound godly to you? So this is how this teaching of the false teachers is heterodox. This is how it is different. It isn't consistent with the gospel. It does not produce godliness. Paul goes on to tell us more specifically how it is different, uh, what it focuses on rather than the gospel. At first he takes a little, an, another little swipe at the false teachers. I love to do that, so Paul did. Uh, uh, anyone who teaches a different doctrine, verse 4, is conceited and understands nothing. In other words, he is arrogant and ignorant. His teaching does not square with the apostolic teaching about Jesus. He arrogantly thinks that he knows and he teaches something different. And he is ignorant about that which he does teach. He's an idiot. These are very strong and condemning words that Paul is using. Very strong, very condemning. He piles word on word throughout this entire text because they are messing with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that always caused Paul to come out swinging. Don't mess with the gospel. What do these false teachers teach? We see that they had a morbid, that's a very interesting word, a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. Now, we don't know exactly what all of that was. I wish we did. It would be very interesting to find out. Back in chapter 1, Paul described them this way. They instruct certain men, uh, excuse me, Timothy, I want you to instruct certain men, these false teachers, not to teach strange doctrines, there's that word heterodoxy, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation. They just love to be guessing stuff and making stuff up. For some men, strange from these things have turned aside to fruitless or meaningless or worthless discussion. These guys delighted in meaningless dribble, fighting over words and concepts which in the end produced nothing. But here's the point. Here's the important part. In the end, it distracted from the gospel and godliness. This was, you see, the problem. They had this morbid interest. The word there, morbid, literally means a sick interest in controversial questions. So notice, this is a play on words that we are supposed to notice if we're reading in the Greek. The gospel and teaching about Jesus those are sound and healthy words. The teaching of the false teachers are sick and unhealthy words. They just argue. They argue about things that no one can really be certain about. In the end, don't matter. They, they, they love to dispute. They love to have meaningless arguments, fruitless discussions, idle speculations. Everything but the gospel. So what does this kind of stuff teach? Uh, produced in the church. What did it produce in the church at Ephesus? The end of verse 4 to verse 5. Strife, uh, excuse me, envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction. There's the church I want to go to. Those words don't need definition. They're fairly clear. Is this what the gospel of Jesus produces? No. The gospel is supposed to unite us. False teaching divides us. Paul takes another parting shot. This division is produced by men of depraved mind, which are actually deprived of the truth. I love that language. Depraved mind speaks of that which is utterly corrupt. 
corrupt because they have not an iota, not an ounce of truth. Paul could hardly be using any stronger words to condemn these false teachers. I am in good company. Because you see, this brings us to the focus of the text. You see, Paul now adds this further description of these heretics, these guys. They, they see godliness or religion as a means of gain. Financial gain. We know that from reading the verses that follow. They see ministry as a means of gaining personal wealth. Does this sound at all familiar? Read through the New Testament and see if the church, see if God's people gained material and physical prosperity. God has blessed American evangelicalism and false teachers and the prosperity theology have corrupted it. And the bad news is they are exporting it around the world. This Prosperity theology, I hate this. They put it under the rubric, under the umbrella of evangelicalism. I don't think it belongs there. I think it's pure heresy. We're going to see that when we get to verses 9 and 10. Pure heresy. But we are exporting it such that it is the fastest growing part of evangelicalism around the world. I think, I think don't quote me on this, I think 500 million Half of a billion people sucked into this. These guys were in it for the money. Paul says they got it all wrong. He says, yes, there is gain in godliness, but it is not necessarily financial gain. It, it, it is gain. In fact, he calls it great. He uses the word mega. It's mega gain. Only when accompanied with contentment. Ha! That kind of throws a monkey wrench in things. Think about that. We don't normally think of godliness and contentment going together. The whole premise of prosperity theology is you are not content. Godliness with contentment. I can be godly, certainly not content, or I can be content, but then I won't be godly. People look at godliness as a cross to bear, certainly not a lifestyle, a lifestyle to enjoy. Godliness, you expect me to be content? They don't have any fun. And so Christians are seen as the most unhappy, discontented people around. And I believe discontent in the things of Christ is sin. And I believe that we arrive here because for many, contentment is a matter of the external. The more that I have, the more content I'll be. And Paul is saying that true contentment which is great gain, is a matter not of the external, but is a matter of the internal. You can't touch this. It's to be found in godliness. Godliness, by the way, is defined as a Godward attitude that motivates us to do that which is pleasing to God, is a life of reverence before and a life of, of obedience to God. Joyfully so. Why is it that we look at obedience as some burden to bear? joyfully so, and therein is gain, you see, when it's accompanied with contentment. Again, here's the problem. Contentment speaks of being satisfied. Contentment speaks of being satisfied with what one has. 
The, the word speaks of an inward satisfaction that is completely independent of outward circumstances. It's an attitude that allows the godly to maintain spiritual balance in the midst of both favorable and unfavorable circumstances. You see, because it doesn't matter what's going on out here because I am content. Can't touch this. If I had the pants, I'd do the little dance. <laughs> no, I know I wouldn't. <laughs> and, and so Paul reminds us, verse 7, we brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out either. The word nothing is in the emphatic. We brought absolutely nothing into the world. That means we will take absolutely nothing out. Well, <laughs> nothing physical. We spend our entire lives, 70, 80, 90 years, trying to amass as much material wealth as we possibly can. And Paul reminds us that whatever we amass, we will leave it behind. The question is often asked at the funeral of a rich person, how much did he leave? And the answer is always the same, all of it. Which reminds me of a story. Rich man wanted to take some of it with him. And so he had three friends, gave to his friends, pastor, a doctor. This is a joke. Just adding a little levity to an otherwise difficult ta ta text. Rich man wanted to take some with him, so he gave to his friends, a pastor, a doctor, and a lawyer, $100,000 each, and asked them to slip it into the coffin right before they closed it so he could take it when he died. After the funeral, the three met up and were talking. The pastor's conscience got the better of him. He admitted, I only put 75000 in. I kept 25000 for myself. The doctor said, well, I only put 50000 in. Kept 50000 for myself. The lawyer said, I am shocked at both of you. I put in a check for the full amount. <laughs> Leave it to an attorney to find a loophole. <laughs> Okay, so let me illustrate this point. You may know a little about the Egyptian pyramids. The pharaohs actually built them as tombs, giant mausoleums. The largest of these is the Great Pyramid built for Pharaoh Khufu about 2600 B.C. It actually is an engineering marvel. I've never been there. I'd love to go sometime. It took approximately 100,000 slaves about 20 years to build it. It's made up of 2.3 million limestone blocks, each weighing about two and a half tons. That's 5,000 pounds each. It originally stood, the scene is massive. It originally stood 481 feet high. Um, that's about 40 stories high. Its base covers 13 acres, which uh, is about eight football fields. Pharaoh Khufu was buried with all of his treasures, hoping to take them with him to the next life. Unfortunately, the tomb was plundered and all of his riches were stolen. What is interesting to note is that all of his riches were there when the thieves arrived. The point is you cannot take any of it with you. The Jewish Talmud says a man is born with his hands clenched, but he dies with them wide open. He comes into this world trying to get everything that he can possibly get for himself, but whatever he manages to acquire, when he leaves, he leaves empty-handed. A Spanish proverb says there are no pockets in a shroud. Americanized, there are no U-holes behind the hearse. Job, after he lost everything in a day, says it this way, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Sing that song. Do we believe it? 
Ecclesiastes 5. The wisest man who ever lived said, as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor. Notice that he can carry in his hand. Nothing that he can carry with his hands. I find that interesting. That is nothing physical. Only that which is within. Only that which really matters. Or that which he sends ahead. You see, uh, we remember the words of Jesus. Do not, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You cannot serve God and money. You, you, can't, you can't do it. Prosperity, people. I think we get the point. Godliness with contentment is great gain because both godliness and contentment have absolutely nothing to do with financial or material gain. And yet that's what we that's what we pursue. Added together, they produce great gain. My question is, have the prosperity teachers ever read? 1 Timothy 6. Paul goes on, for if we have food and covering, which speaks of, covering speaks of clothes and roof over our head. If we have these, food and shelter, with these we shall be content. Few in our culture, however, are content with the minimums. Rather, we are content with always having just a little bit more than we have. I always want it just a little bit better than my parents had it. So we are caught up in this world of consumerism, which is defined as an increasingly consumption of goods is beneficial. Lie. Ben Franklin once asked, who is rich? He that is content. Who is that? He answered his question, nobody. Because we are always want more than we have. And yet a Japanese proverb goes like this, even in a thousand mat room, you can only sleep on one mat. Think about it. Bible verses, Jewish Talmud, Spanish proverbs, Japanese proverbs. Everyone seems to address this issue of contentment, but nobody seems to be able to figure it out. Well, Paul does. You see, he addressed this issue of godly contentment in Philippians chapter 4. It's a passage that we often quote out of its context. There Paul is in prison, incarcerated in Rome. Philippians had renewed their concern for him by sending a gift. He's thankful and acknowledges the gift, but he says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am, even if I'm in prison. I know how to get along with humble means, meaning with little, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret. Here it is of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering needs. Isn't that a passage these guys have skipped? It doesn't matter. The external circumstances do not matter. I am content, you see, because I can do all things through Christ, through Him who strengthens me. There's the verse we often misquote. We take it out of context. I can do anything, man. I can win this basketball game. I can jump this building in a single bound. I can stop a speeding bullet with my teeth. I can pass this test. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Actually, the context is I can find true godly contentment regardless of my circumstances, whether I am rich or poor. 
because I know the secret of contentment and it has nothing to do with go, what's going on out here. It's Christ in me who strengthens me in whatever circumstances I find myself. How does this square with the false teaching of the prosperity teachers today who say God wants you to be materially wealthy? Sow a seed, get some back. The very first passion conference that I ever attended, got to go with a bunch of college students, 25,000 of my best friends. Charlie Hall sang a song, Rich or poor, God, I want you more than anything that glitters in this world. Be my all, all all-consuming fire. You can have all my hands can hold, my heart, mind, strength, and soul. Be my all, all all-consuming fire. Because Because we have all we need in you. All we need is you. My prayer was that those 25,000 students singing that at the top of their voices believed it. There's a nuance here we should not miss. When Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain, the word contentment was a favorite word of the cynics and the stoics. You see, by contentment, they meant self-sufficiency. They were saying, see, all you need is you. (laughs) They taught that we could find contentment in self-sufficiency. Paul turns that completely on his head. Contentment is not found in self-sufficiency, but in Christ's sufficiency. I can do all things, even find contentment in less than favorable circumstances, not by a self-focus, not by a self-sufficiency, but by a Christ-focus and a Christ-sufficiency. Finally, Paul goes one step further, brings us to our last point, our conclusion. To be discontent, to decide I want more, to be discontent leads to some serious consequences. And I'm not just talking about a poor credit report. You want to get rich. By the way, the words want to refer to a settled disposition that comes from reasoning. You have thought about it. You have made it your life's ambition, your life's pursuit, your life's goal, the chief end to get rich. If you want to get rich, notice one thing he does not say here. One thing he does not say is that you will not get rich. You might do it. Good for you. Let's see what it's going to cost you. He's likely referring to these false teachers who were in it for the money. But he generalizes the principle, he generalizes the truth. Those who want to get rich, who think contentment is found in material, financial gain, will fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction, word upon word. He could hardly make it any worse. You want to get rich? Good. Pursue that. It's a package deal. Now, There's nothing wrong with riches. Don't misunderstand me. He's going to address rich people in verse 17. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But if you make it your goal in life to pursue riches, you will fall into temptation, which speaks of the lure to achieve your ends by any means available. You'll do whatever is necessary, right or wrong, your integrity will be lost. You will fall into a snare. That word is typically used of falling into the snare of the devil. You are trapped into his scheming with many foolish and harmful desires. 
Because with the ungodly pursuit of all things material, you will be tempted again to sacrifice your integrity. You will give in to temptations and desires which will plunge you into ruin and destruction. Ruin and destruction, very interesting words. They are close synonyms leading most to understand that the ruin is ruin in this life and destruction is ultimate destruction in the life to come. Yeah, I don't think I like that. Well, he's going to say that these people have wandered from the faith in the next verse. This is my point. This prosperity theology is not harmless. I believe it to be eternally damning. If you are in it for the money, if you give to get, you believe so that you, in the end, you can have personal wealth, it potentially can lead you to ruin now and destruction in the life to come. For, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. He's contrasting the false teachers who were in it for the money. These were, remember, some of them ungodly elders. And he's contrasting them with the qualification of godly elders in chapter 3 who were free from the love of money. Listen to me very, very carefully, okay? Any spiritual leader, ministry leader, pastor, teacher, don't care that demonstrates a love of money through material possessions is at best problematic and is at worst leading followers straight to hell. Three things Paul does not say here. First, he does not say money is a root of all evil. It's okay that you have a 20 in your pocket. The problem is not money. Money itself is immoral. It is the love of money that is the problem. Second, it is not the root of all evil. It is a root. There are other roots of evil. And third, love of money is a root of all kinds. It's not the root of all evil, just all kinds of evil. The point, though, is made. These false teachers were in it for their love of money, which was producing conflict in the church. They could not get the gospel and godliness right, which produces unity of brothers and sisters. They were dividing the church. They were pursuing wealth, prompted by their love of money, longing for it. Paul says they have wandered from the faith. They have left, that means the true essence of, Christ, of the Christian faith found in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and a resulting life of godliness. They had left that. They were pursuing wealth. Here's my question. Does that sound familiar? And the words of Jesus come ringing back. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? They were simply longing for the material, not the spiritual. They wandered from the faith. They pierced themselves with many griefs. That is actually very graphic language. To pierce themselves speaks to impale themselves from all around with many eternal griefs. The end of this monetary pursuit, the end of prosperity theology is not harmless. It is not good. How does this square with so much of what you see on so-called Christian television today? I have a better question. 
how does this square with the passions and pursuits of your life? What is it that you want more than anything in the world? You see, at the end of time, at the end of it all, you will stand before Christ empty-handed. He will not be the least bit impressed with the size of your bank account, that your property portfolio, or your IRAs. He will not be impressed. At the end of the at the end of it all, he will be concerned about the gospel in your life and the godliness that you're supposed to produce. Stand for prayer. Father, my very deliberate and very specific prayer as an under-shepherd for these, uh, in a very limited sense, my people, your people, Jesus, as the chief shepherd, my concern, my prayer is that you would protect them from the snare of the devil. We live in an affluent society. Um, top, the 1%, the, the, the we're it. Oh, maybe not in the U.S. and the world we are. always want more. Would you save us from that? Would you save the church from these charlatans who would seek to show, to light the way to hell with passions that are unbiblical and ungodly, heretical? Protect these people, I pray, from false teaching. May we find true godliness in contentment, which is great gain. Keep us from wandering from the faith, I pray in Christ's name.